cry out to you. You are our all in all. You are the giver of life. You are the hope for salvation. You are the one who breaks our chains, who finds us when we're lost, who heals us when we are sick or hurting. You are our comfort and our refuge. You are also our friend, our brother, our father. Lord, we cry out to you to be here with us today. To let your Holy Spirit flow here like a river. To let it wash through us. Open our eyes. Cleanse our hearts. Help us to see you anew. To hear your words. To truly truly hear your words and to leave here different than we came because no one can be in the presence of God and not be changed and let that be true of us today as we come before you kneeling at your feet ready to receive what you have for us in Jesus name we pray Amen. You may be seated. So there's a story about a family with a young girl and an uncle that they hadn't had a chance to see very often, and he was often gone and away on trips. And he was going to be around for just a short time. And so he was visiting with family. And they were excited to see him because he had not seen his sister or his brother-in-law in quite some time. And so as he visited the, their, their young daughter, who was understandably a little, you know, reluctant because this was an uncle that she did not get to see often. She wouldn't really go to him. She wouldn't really interact with him. And at first, it's just, you know, assumed to be that childhood shyness. But as his stay extended for a few days, it didn't go away. She didn't warm up to him. And in fact, when the family tried to get her to give him a hug, she burst into tears. And she was admonished for being so rude to her uncle who she had not seen in so long. And he just kind of, you know, laughed it off as, you know, adults will do. I mean, kids, we give them a lot of leeway. And not too long after that, he left. 
And some years later, he was arrested in a crackdown on child pornography. So here's the question. How did she know? How did the little girl know? How did she know that there was something wrong? How did she look at him and see danger? when the parents couldn't. And so it raises another question. Can we look at someone and say, clearly this is a righteous person? Are there outward signs that we can look at and say, this, this is truly a man or a woman of God? Clearly, this is a righteous person. This is a person after God's own heart. This is a person we can trust. And conversely, can we just look at a person and go, oh, that's a person you need to be watch out for. That's a person you got to be careful of. Now, for many of us, if we were to try to do that, I'm not saying that we should, but if we were to try to do that, we would probably be looking at surface things, wouldn't we? Well, that guy has tattoos. Better watch out for him. Well, that woman is wearing a nice skirt all the way down to the ankles. Clearly, she's a, she's a righteous woman. Isn't that what we do? I mean... We try not to, but, and it might not be that obvious, but there are subtle things. He looks a little like that kid who used to beat me up. I don't trust him. Right? But interestingly enough, the Jews in the first century, they actually had readily, ready answers for that. Could you look at a person and tell if they're righteous? Absolutely. Could you look at a person and tell if they're a sinner? Most certainly you could. And this was culture-wide. Okay, this was not just something that the elite thought. This was something that everyone thought. And so, if they're looking for a righteous person, what they're looking for is a person upon whom God's blessings have fallen. God blessed the righteous. And so this is what you would look for. Signs of God's blessing upon people in the first century, to first century Jews. Number one, wealth and prosperity. And I am not kidding. If you read the Old Testament, you see example after example after example after example of a righteous man of God, whom the scriptures clearly tell us God blessed by making them wealthy. And so it was assumed, therefore, by first century Jews, that that was a truth that could be depended upon 
in everyday life. So if I were to look on any given man or woman and see wealth and prosperity, riches, comfort, this was God's blessing. This was a sign of God's blessing. And so, clearly, this is a righteous man. And very likely, his father before him was a righteous man. Health. If people were healthy, if they, if they never got sick, if they lived to old age, if they weren't struck down by injury, but seemed to live a charmed life. Righteous man or woman. Power. If they had been elevated somehow to positions of power, if they had been born into positions of power, if they found themselves among the powerful and the elite in the Sanhedrin, for example. The Sanhedrin was both the religious council and the ruling council. It, it was both the political authority and the religious authority. It garnered both of those. And if you were on that, just by virtue of being there, clearly God had to have raised you up. You were a righteous man. And finally, beauty and strength. I mean, has anyone ever heard this, the story of Samson? God's blessings upon him with strength, right? Or of Esther? God's blessing on her with what? Beauty. And these things were assumed in first century Jewish culture. They were not debated. There are no records of first century Jews questioning these assumptions. It was crystal clear to them that I could look at a woman and say, she's a beautiful woman, she's probably righteous. I could look at a man and say, he's rich and powerful, he's righteous. Very likely. More than likely. In fact, Pretty certain. Crystal clear. And likewise, how did we recognize sinners? People for whom God's judgment had fallen. Well, the corresponding things. Number one, poverty. Okay, if you were poor, if you were in poverty, you had sinned. Or your parents had sinned because sin carried down from generations. And that was just assumed. That's why Pharisees didn't associate with the poor. They're sinners. In fact, I just, while I was researching this sermon, I was looking for some some other people's thoughts on, on this issue, and I ran into somebody's blog in which the title of the entry was The Connection Between Poverty and Sin. And this guy said, you know, I've been thinking about this a long time, and it's clear to me that if you're in poverty, it's because you've sinned. So, 
it's not so far for people to actually think that. And this was a very strong belief in the first century. Next, if you were sick all the time, had some physical ailment, there was no question that you or your parents had sinned. No question. Not even debated. Clearly, you deserved to be where you were. Likewise, the rich had no real obligation to you because your situation was your fault or your parents' fault, and it was God's judgment. And who are we to interfere with God's judgment? We're not going to fight against God. How about if you were powerless? Just an average, everyday person who had no connections, didn't know the right people, had no positions of authority, didn't have a really particularly influential job. Sin. Definitely sin. And finally, if you're ugly or, or weak, Did you see that family's daughter? Clearly they have sinned. Did you see that weakling of a son they have? Sin. Now I'm bringing this up because I want you to understand the context in which this next teaching is given. Because it is not the same context that we live in today because we've heard these teachings many, many times. And so we don't hear them like the people who were hearing them in the first century heard them. And so I wanted you to understand the thing that we were just laughing about was not a laughing matter to them. It was assumed. It was truth. It would like us, somebody saying, you know, the sky is blue, and us laughing. Ha ha ha! Why are you laughing? It's plainly apparent. It was plainly apparent. It was indisputable. In fact, let me, I want to go over the scripture. This is from John, not, this is before we get into the main message, but I want you to see this. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. There's a man born blind from his birth. Listen to this. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what they did ask and what they didn't ask are both quite telling because they did not ask, was he born blind because his parents sinned? That's not what they asked. The assumption was somebody sinned. Their only question was who? This was a cultural-wide assumption. Everybody assumed it. In fact, the theological debates that we actually find coming up in Jewish culture in their writings and stuff from the first century are not whether or not somebody sinned. It's this one right here. Who sinned? I mean, you can't really blame the baby who was born blind, right? So it must have been mom and dad. They sinned. And in case you don't know the story, Jesus' answer was, 
neither. Neither one. But then he gives an answer that is equally as uncomfortable as that one, that he just said neither. He said he was born blind to show God's glory. How would you like to be the person who has spent most of your life with an infirmary, in, in infirmity to show God's glory? For a specific moment in time when you would encounter someone and they would heal you so that God could get the glory. Is that uncomfortable? Is that uncomfortable to anyone? Because that's uncomfortable to me. In the same way that we would be uncomfortable with the assumption that someone had this sickness because of sin, we were like, oh, that's just wrong. I mean, that makes us uncomfortable. Are we any more comfortable with Jesus' response? Well, no, 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 no one sinned. But God did do this. Now, Jesus is not saying God always does this. Jesus is not setting out a rule. He's saying, in this instance, this is what happened. And that alone blew his disciples' mind because they were pretty sure that that rule about if you're righteous, you're rich, and if you're poor, you're a sinner, was universal. In fact, you see some of that in the Old Testament and the anguish that some of the people would express shock and dismay at how the unrighteous prospered while the righteous suffered. And they were very unhappy with God about that. So this feeling, this idea that righteousness is connected to comfort is an actual human, universal idea. But it was very prevalent in the first century. Now that's the context that I want you to be thinking about as I read this teaching to you. Okay? And here it is. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is he asking about? Salvation, right? How do I be a truly righteous person, right? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? Because wealth was a sign of righteousness. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? You heard, you heard, and have always heard that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's what you've always heard. This is what they heard. It is harder for a righteous and holy man who has God's blessings upon his life to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a righteous and holy man whose God's blessings have been on through his entire life to enter the kingdom of God. That's what they heard. That's why they responded with, well, who then can be saved? If the most righteous among us are like a camel trying to fit through the eye of a needle, What hope do I have? What hope is there for me? Jesus looked at them and he said, well, if you're a believer, no, he didn't actually say that. He didn't say, well, if you're truly righteous, he didn't say that. His next words were, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. He did not say. My point is, you know, that rich men are not as righteous as you think. He didn't say that. He didn't say, well, if you're poor and humble, you can get in. He didn't say that. He didn't even say, if you follow me, well, those who follow me. In response to their question, who then can be saved? He said, with man, it is impossible. And by the way, he didn't say for man it is impossible. Different construction. This is para anthropon, which means inclusively for all men, with men, with the situation in which men find themselves, not just the rich with men. And it, by using anthropos as the word, that's people, 
That's a man as opposed to a non-human. So it's a human being. With men, impossible. He had just jumped from rich, which in their minds was righteous, remember. He had just jumped from rich and righteous because here's this rich guy came up and he had fulfilled the law. And Jesus was actually kind of happy with what he had done so far. Jesus looked at him, loved him. He's like, your heart is kind of in the right place, kind of, almost. There's just this one little thing. But when he answered them here, he expanded it beyond rich. He didn't say, with the rich, this is impossible. With men, salvation is impossible. Well, then Peter speaks up, and he's, there were times when Peter showed moments of insight, and this is actually one of them. Peter actually catches a little bit about what Jesus is saying. Only a few moments, and and he had a tendency to lose those moments really fast. My favorite moment when Peter got it and then lost it within a span of just a couple minutes, is when he says, who do people say I am? And he goes, you know, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're a prophet, you're this, that. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is like, what? <laughs> you nailed it! Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You are not smart enough to figure that out on your own. <laughs> the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Now, let me tell you how this is going to work out. See, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be betrayed, and he's going to die, and he's going to be crucified, and on the third day, he's going to rise from from the grave. Peter's very next thing is to grab Jesus and rebuke him. Jesus, that's not how it works for the Messiah. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) So, Peter, Peter, I love Peter because he's a little like me. <laughs> I go from the highest high to the lowest low in seconds. I, I have the acceleration of a, of a really nice sports car. <laughs> and so I just love Peter. And so Peter says, Peter spoke up and he says, we have left everything to follow you. He catches it. See, he's got it. Maybe one of the things Jesus is saying is that wealth is not necessarily a sign that you're righteous. It's following you. It's following you. Maybe that's the key. We have left everything to follow you, he says. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. This is a continuation, by the way. This is moments later. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Okay, so this is, they're still in this aftershock of this thing that has just happened where Jesus has just said the righteous don't make it to heaven. 
That's what they heard. The righteous man, easier for a camel to squeeze that sucker through the eye of a needle than it is for a righteous man. And they're like, well, that's never happening. So Jesus just said, nobody gets saved. And so they're all stunned, and they're still in this, in this aftershock. And, and you know how when you're in a shock, you just don't hear things? There are times that I've been in shock, and my wife tells me things. I'm pretty sure she actually never said anything. And she's pretty sure she actually did. Because, you know, her mouth was moving, sound was coming out. I just blame it on bad hearing. I'm getting old. Again, he took the 12 aside. Now remember, everybody's in shock. They're all following him. They're all in shock. And he takes the 12 aside. And he told them what was going to happen. Now this next thing is set in the context of what they were just talking about, which is that the righteous can't get saved on their own. It's impossible for any person to find salvation on their own. But it's not impossible for God. So that's the context. He says this just a few moments later, and he pulls the 12 aside, and he goes, I'm going to give you guys a secret about this that I've just been talking about. Here it is. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise. This whole thing, this whole teaching, is about the connection between righteousness and salvation. Now, I want to put somebody on the spot. But because I'm telling you in advance that I'm putting you on the spot, and it's going to be uncomfortable. That's the title of my teaching, by the way, uncomfortable. So this is going to be uncomfortable. I would like to put someone on the spot, but because it's going to be uncomfortable, and I'm telling you in advance that it's going to be uncomfortable for you, I'm going to ask you to volunteer. And I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing. Okay, now you're going to stand right here with no reference and you're going to repeat back to me what the story is that we just read. You can paraphrase. Are you, now? you can paraphrase, but you know, from the time the rich young man comes up to Jesus until Jesus tells at the end. Yeah, no, you don't have to say that one. Just the part where the rich young man comes up that's starting there. And he says, what must I do? Okay, tell the, tell the whole story as well as you can all the way to the end where he says what is about to happen to him. Okay, tell that story. You can, yes, turn around if you want to. Go ahead.
<laughs> Good. <laughs> so um, the disciples are all confused, like, wait a minute, you know, what's up with that? I thought they were just supposed to follow the Ten Commandments, and we knew, you know, according to what we believed in, this guy's rich, he's already blessed, he's already, you know, saved and all that, so where is this coming from? And he says, well, basically, you know, this is, this is why it's so difficult for the rich to be saved, because... Um, and the way that I interpret it, I'm ad-libbing, is that he's saying, you know, because you have these false beliefs that, hey, you know, because you're rich and you're blessed and all this, you're saved, but that's not what it's all about. Um, that's not going to get you to heaven. You might as well try and shove a camel through the eye of a needle. And um, the only way that you can get saved is um, not through man, but through God. Okay, continue. There's more to the story. <laughs> All the way to the very end of what I read. What's the next thing that, that Peter says? I'll give you a little clue. Peter says, but we have left everything. To follow you. Right. So now what happens? He tells them that he, that he has to, they have to follow God, that they can't follow, they can't follow man, and that the... Um, the <laughs> the, um, the riches, when they're questioning that the riches are following them, but we have to, like, I'm lost, I'm done. It's okay, it's okay. Let's, let's give her a hand. <laughs> okay, I told you in advance it was going to be uncomfortable. Because for as many times as we've heard this story, it's actually difficult to tell what the story is really saying and what it's really about. Partly partly because I'm interpreting it partway as we're going through, but partly because the things that don't jump out at us, that don't strike us, we don't pay attention to. Her recounting of the story was uniquely American. Say, what? Because... Americans, there are things that we have cultural blind spots to in the same way that the disciples in the first century had cultural blind spots to the interplay between righteousness and wealth, righteousness and comfort. And some of that connection that we think of between, that they had between righteousness and comfort is still present in America today. The largest church in America is a church that preaches prosperity gospel. That the sign of your righteousness to God is that he will make you wealthy. That's what the first century Jews believed. And Jesus was saying, you know what? These rich people, hard for them to get in. Now, how many of you have heard the story about the needle gate? The needle gate, if you heard that story about the needle gate, so a couple of you have heard the story. Raise your hands if you've heard the story about the eye, the camel through the eye of a needle, and that there is, there's, a, there's a, a door in the wall that's called the needle gate. Have you heard that? No? Yes? Yes? What is the needle gate? So 
the opposite. So people could get through. People could get through. So here's a photo. Here's a photo of what the needle gate is supposed to be. And here's how that goes. In the gate in Jerusalem and some other cities, there was this small entrance, just large enough for a man to get through. Probably actually smaller than this, but, you know, that's the one that... This photo is from like 1900 or 1920, something like that, by the way. And the, this was, once they closed all the main gates around Jerusalem, Jerusalem had seven gates, by the way, and they all had different names. And some of them are actually named in the Bible. Like, like um, that's the new Jerusalem, but the old Jerusalem had seven. And some of them are named. Like at one point, John's talking, and he says, and they came in through the beautiful gate. That's the name of the gate. And right by Beautiful Gate was this fountain. Okay? Or he says, is this fountain. Anyway. Well, the Needle Gate was this small door that was only large enough for a man to get through, and they would close all the big gates. And at night, if you wanted to get in or out of the city, you had to go through the man-sized gate. And it was just big enough for a person to get through. And not a very big person. So Tony and I would have been like camels. <laughs> and you couldn't hardly get camels through it because camels are big. You ever seen a camel? They're, like their back is like way up here. And if they got humps and stuff and they're wide, in order for a camel to get through this gate, you had to unload all the baggage off of it, all of its possessions, and it would have to get down on its knees and crawl through this gate. You ever seen a camel crawl on its knees? That is, the camels just don't do that. So this is hard, right? Here's the thing. It is possible for a camel to get through a needle gate, isn't it? It's hard, but it's possible. Here's the interesting thing about that story about the needle gate. Not a single thing that I just told you about it is true. Literally, we have searched every historical, ancient historical archive that we can find, every archaeological bit of evidence. We have looked in old Jewish sources, secular sources, Roman sources, Persian sources. Every source that exists, we can find no references to a needle gate. We don't even know where the story came from. It's an interesting analogy, but here's the thing. It means that it's possible. That's not what Jesus said. He said it is impossible. With people, this is impossible. But with God, nothing is possible. Jesus wasn't talking about a needle gate. Jesus was talking about a needle and a camel. And think about it. If there were such a thing as a needle gate, which we have no evidence that there ever was, despite the fact that it's actually not a bad analogy, Still, we have no evidence that there actually ever was. The response should have been, whoa, that's hard. Not, 
well, who then can be saved? Because the truth is uncomfortable. The truth that you can't be saved, I can't be saved. None of us can be saved by anything that we do, by anything within us, by any amount of taking things off. That our righteousness is not good enough to get us saved. That truth is uncomfortable. Now let's pray. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not really stopping there. <laughs> Good. We want to know where this goes. You guys know the feeding of the 5,000, right? And the feeding of the 5,000 is told, I believe, in all four Gospels. And each of the Gospels pulls out a different element of the story to zero in on. The one that I have been spending a lot of time on lately is Mark and Mark's version because he puts it together in a way that is radically different from any of the other Gospels and, and it has really just pulled me in. But today we're going to look at John's version of it because there's something... There's an element to the story that John puts in it that none of the other Gospels do that is critical to what we're talking about today. And it goes, it's chapter 6, verses 1 through 66. That's a lot of verses. We're not going to read that. I'm just going to tell you the story. And you kind of know the story, but I'm going to tell you how, how the elements that John puts in the story. So Jesus is teaching all day, and there's, there's a huge crowd of people. And... At the end of the day, Jesus realizes that they've been with him all day and they're hungry. And so he tells his disciples that we need to feed them. And the disciples, you know, go through the usual routine of how can we? We don't have it. And well, but look, there's a Jesus says, Well, what food do we have? And well, here's this kid over here. He's got a sack lunch with five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus takes it and he blesses it and he gives it to the disciples and they feed the 5,000 men, Matthew, by the way, points out 5,000 not including women and children. So this was 5,000 men because Jews only counted the men. So attendance this morning, look around. If we only counted the men, we got about 25 in attendance here because the ladies, you don't get counted. If we were Jewish. <laughs> I'm not saying that we don't count you. Well, anyway, and so he feeds them all, and they're satisfied, and there's a bunch of, of baskets left over, and, they, and, and they, they gather up the scraps, and then Jesus, realizing the people are all really, like, really super pumped about the fact that, that this miracle has just happened, and Jesus provided a free buffet, and, and so the, Jesus realizes that the people have the intention of grabbing him and making him their king. And so he, he, he bolts, and he takes off, 
and he goes into the mountains, and then his, his disciples, he sends them across the lake, and then he goes across the lake, and then he walks on the water, and, and the people, they hang out, hang out for the night because, you know, this was just like the most amazing thing that they've ever been, better than any concert that they've ever gone to before. And so they get up the next day, and Jesus is gone. And they were like, well, I thought this was a multi-day concert. And so they, they start looking around for where Jesus went, and they go down and they, they discover that one of the boats is gone. And so they're like, ah, you know, we're putting two and two together. He went across the lake. And so then they grab a whole bunch of other boats, and they, they zip over, and they figure out where he's going, and they get over to him. And they pull up, and they say, we're here. Let's have it. Give us some more. And this is Jesus' response in verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Jesus was a master of the awkward moment. And he goes on and he commences to talk to them about bread. And he tells them, you guys came because you wanted bread. And here's the real thing that you don't know. You do need bread, but not this bread that you had yesterday. You need a different kind of bread. And he says this, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And as he begins to expound on this, the Jews start to realize that this is a really uncomfortable teaching. And they're not sure that they like it. And right shortly thereafter, we run into this verse. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And of course, being a people who are detail-oriented, they started pointing out, you didn't come down from heaven, we know your parents. You're a liar. Therefore, we can't believe you. And Jesus just goes on. And he continues to teach them. And he gets, he doesn't back off he doesn't explain what he's talking about. In fact, he makes it worse. It, it's been uncomfortable enough by him claiming to be bread that comes down from heaven, but then he has the gall, the audacity, to tell them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my followers and you can't have salvation. And they're like, what? 
aside from the fact that the law forbids us to do that, you can't eat flesh and drink blood of people, you're nuts. You have a demon. And in verse 66, this is what it says. From this time, many of his disciples turned back, turned back and no longer followed him. Because there comes a point at which discomfort just crosses the, just, it just goes over the top. It just crosses. It's just like, you know, I didn't sign up for this. The free food was great. But seriously, like, you want us to eat you? You're a weirdo. We're out of here. Back in September, most of you know, about a week before my wife's birthday, I had a heart attack. And there's nothing quite like facing death that slaps you in the face and gets you to take a really good look at what's going on around you, what you're doing with your life, where you're going, the choices you've made. Because as I sat there in my living room, waiting for the ambulance to arrive, I was certain I was going to die. I was positive. Now, I was trying not to let my wife see that. But I was convinced. I had never felt the kind of pain and I spent my life in the martial arts. I mean, I was getting punched by black belts. You ever been kicked by a black belt so hard that it threw you across the wall and put a dent in the wall? That hurts. And I'd never felt anything like this. It was like a flaming knife. You ever had something like really hot searing your skin? That's what it felt like, except it was penetrating into my chest and it was punching in at the same time like there was a knife digging into my chest in the middle of my chest and I, and I, couldn't, I couldn't grab it, I couldn't do anything with it. I would never felt anything like that. At one point, the pain was so intense, I actually lost control of my movements. And I have a very high tolerance for pain. And I actually couldn't control my movements. I was in so much pain. It was like my my nervous system was short-circuiting. I was convinced I was going to die. Well, I didn't. I know, surprise, surprise ending, right? Surprise ending. And I went to hospital and they put some little pieces of metal in my chest and, you know, things are much better now. And a few weeks after that, six weeks, something like that, my wife and I are part of, of a group with a, a group of friends. And we start a study 
a little six-week study called Not a Fan. Has anyone ever heard of Not a Fan? Have you ever heard of this study, Not a Fan? Nobody. Okay, good. Then you've heard of it? Okay. It's a, it's a small group study. It's designed for small groups, and it comes with videos. And each week, there's a video in it that is acting out this scenario, and each video c carries you along the story and tells you more. And then there's a book that you read that goes along with it. Okay? The book looks like this. That's the book. Real simple. Not a fan. And in small print, it says, Becoming Completely Committed Follower of Jesus. And so we're in this small group, and we're, we're watching, and in, and in video number one, the main character dies from a heart attack. And my wife will tell you I was kind of shell-shocked. Because it's one thing to be watching a show and somebody like gets shot. It's another thing when you've been shot and somebody gets shot. It's one thing to be watching a show and someone dies from cancer. It's another thing to be watching a show where someone dies from cancer and you have cancer. I've seen lots of shows where people die from heart attacks. Never hit me before. But this was just a few weeks after I'd gone through the experience. I was shell-shocked. I mean, I was having a hard time keeping from shaking. And it starts with these group of people, they get together and this guy has a heart attack. Boom, falls on the floor and dies. And then from there on, it's a lot of flashbacks to tell you about this guy's life. And it starts, it goes way back to six years ago when he was a jerk. And then it talks about his salvation and how he changed and how uncomfortable that made things for his family and his wife and his children and how much they didn't like the new him. And then it was either the first or the second time that we got together, and this is with a group of friends that Renat and I have been friends with for 10 or 15 years. We know them fairly well. We've been around them a lot. And it was in the first or second um, time that we got together. We'd watched the video. We'd read the chapter. And there was a question. And the question was, so... Do you feel, just yourself, do you feel more like a fan? Do you feel like more like maybe you've been living a life of a fan of Jesus? You know, the people who came for the free buffet, but, weren't, but when the going got a little uncomfortable, they bailed? Or do you feel like more like you're the committed follower? You're the, you're the one who's like in there for the long haul, no matter what. So we're going around the room. And I'll be honest with you, the answers shocked me. There's a friend of ours, and I'm not going to tell you his name, because you don't know him anyway, but there's a friend of ours who was sitting there. This man has spent his life going on mission trips, He's raised Christian children. He has been committed 
and involved in his church in every way that he can from the get-go. I've known him 15 years, and he has done and been involved in everything. And he sat there and he said, we being honest? We were like, yeah, of course we are. He said, I think I'm a fan. And I felt like those disciples, and this is only a few months ago, I felt like those disciples who were going, wait, 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 time out. What do you mean righteous men don't get into heaven? I'm sitting there and I'm looking at him going, wait, 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 time out, time out. You're one of the most committed people I know. What are you talking about? What do you mean you're, you feel like you're a fan? I'm going to read to you some of the prologue to this book. I want you to listen to this because the thing that we just went over with the feeding of the 5,000, that's the illustration he uses in the prologue. That's why I went over it because I want you to know that story when you hear him talking about it. Listen, listen to what he says. He's talking, he's sitting to set the stage. He's, he's been sitting in the sanctuary and he had this huge crowd the previous Sunday and he's sitting in the sanctuary and he's praying to God because a lot of them were first-time people. Just this giant crowd. The place has never been so filled. And he's praying to God, how do I bring them back? How do I, how do I find something that is going to so excite them, so amaze them that, they, that they're going to want to come back. And he said, I've been studying the Bible my whole life, and I'm sitting there, and I can't think of anything. And so he starts to pray, and he, and he says, he opens the Bible, and he starts to read the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John. And this is what happens. He says, so Jesus is, he's had this huge crowd, just like I just had. What did he do? How did he handle it? After a full day of teaching, Jesus knows the people are getting hungry, and so he turns to his disciples and he asks what all these people will do for food. One of the disciples, Philip, tells Jesus that even with eight months' wages, it wouldn't be enough money to buy bread for everyone to have a bite. From Philip's perspective, there really wasn't anything that could be done. But another disciple, Andrew, has been scanning the crowd, and he tells Jesus of a boy who has five loaves of bread and two small fish. Jesus takes the boy's sack lunch, and with it, he feeds the entire crowd. In fact, the Bible tells us that even after everyone had their fill, there was still plenty of food left over. After dinner, the crowd decides to camp out for the night so they can be with Jesus the next day. These are, the same big, these are some big-time fans of Jesus. The next morning, when the crowd wakes up and they're hungry again, they look around for Jesus, a.k.a. their meal ticket, but he's nowhere to be found. These fans are hoping for an encore performance. Eventually, they realize that Jesus and his disciples have crossed over to the other side of the lake, and by the time they catch up to Jesus, they're starving. They've already missed their chance to order breakfast, and they're ready to find out what's on the lunch menu. 
But Jesus has decided to shut down the all-you-can-eat buffet. He's not handing out any more free samples. In verse 26, he says to the crowd, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw the miraculous sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus knows that these people are not going to all the trouble and sacrifice because they're following him, but because they want some free food. Was it Jesus they wanted? Or were they only interested in what he could do for them? In verse 35, Jesus offers himself, but the question is, would that be enough? Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And Jesus says, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, suddenly he's the only thing on the menu. The crowd has to decide if he will satisfy or if they're hungry for something more. Here's what we read at the end of the chapter. And from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of the fans turned to go home. And I was struck by the fact that Jesus doesn't chase them. I'm going to pause reading it for a second, and I want to point something out, because I've done this a hundred times. I say something hard. I say something tough. I say something fierce. I say something uncomfortable. And someone gets offended by it. Or takes it the wrong way, or they say, oh, that can't be true. Two Sundays ago in my Sunday school class, I said this. And every single thing in the law still applies to us. And the class went, Boo! But Paul says, and what did I do? I then commenced to explain what I was talking about. Jesus didn't do that. When Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me, and the people go, Boo! That's an exact quote, by the way, of what they said. Jesus didn't go, I'm speaking symbolically, gang. Come on, keep up. He didn't. He just keeps doubling down, saying more and more difficult things, getting more and more uncomfortable. Until finally they leave. And at one point, they leave, and he turns to his disciples, the twelve, you know, because the, some of these other people who left him were disciples, they just weren't part of the twelve. And he turns to the twelve, and he says, so are you leaving too? Seriously? And Peter, my man, Peter, says, where would we go? You have the words of life. Every now and then he gets it right. But Jesus had a tendency not to explain. In fact, more often than not, Jesus did not explain what he was talking about. He didn't chase after them. He didn't take the uncomfortable and try to make it comfortable. And I tell you, 
I don't do that well. I didn't end this back when I pretended like I was going to, did I? I kept going. Jesus didn't. He stopped. And he was kind of like, if you're really serious, you'll figure this out. So I'm going to continue here. He says, And I was struck by the fact that he didn't chase after them. He doesn't soften the message to make it more appealing. He doesn't send the disciples chasing after them with creative handouts, inviting them to come back for a build-your-own Sunday ice cream social. He seems okay with the fact that his popularity has just plummeted. As I sat in the sanctuary, surrounded by thousands of empty seats, here's what became clear to me. It wasn't the size of the crowd Jesus cared about, it was their level of commitment. And then he apologizes to God. And he says, almost as soon as I said it to him, I knew I needed to go further. A few days later on Easter Sunday, a crowd of thousands gathered and I began my sermon with a choked up apology. I told the crowd that I was wrong for being too concerned about what they would think and how many of them would come back. I think over the years my intentions were good. I wanted to make Jesus look as attractive as possible so that people would come to find eternal life in him. I was offering the people Jesus, but I was handing out free bread, and in the process I cheapened the gospel. Imagine it this way. Imagine that my oldest daughter turns 25. Now my oldest daughter is 33. Not married. My youngest daughter is 21. Not married. So this example he's about to give nailed me. Imagine it this way. My oldest daughter turns 25. She isn't married, but she really wants to be. I decide I'm going to help make that happen. So imagine that I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and I make up t-shirts begging someone to choose her. I can offer some attractive gifts as incentives. Now, doesn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that seem to make that whoever came to her would be doing her a favor? Now, I would never do that. Heck no. <laughs> I would set the standard high. I would do background checks and de lie detector tests. There would be lengthy applications to be filled out in triplicate. References would be checked, hidden cameras installed. If you want to have a relationship with her, you better be prepared to give her the best of everything you have. I don't want to just hear you say that you love her. I want to know you're committed to her. I want to know you would give your life. By the way, my sons have kind of treated my daughter's boyfriends that way. That's probably why they're still unmarried. <laughs> if you think I'm kidding, talk to Krista. Too often in my preaching, I have tried to talk people into following Jesus. I wanted to make following him as appealing, as comfortable, and as convenient as possible. 
Now let me tell you the part of the story that Linnea missed when she was saying it. I said it's a uniquely American retelling. And that is this. Listen to what Jesus says at the end because most Americans miss this. I'm going to go back to it. You don't have to take the slides back, but he says this. Truly I tell you, this is right after Peter says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. And he says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Sounds like he's offering wealth, right? Because he said in this present age. And this is what he says you will receive in this present age if you leave everything to follow him. Listen to what he says. Homes, a hundredfold, a hundredfold. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecution. And all of those are attached to hundredfold. You think your life is uncomfortable now? You're going to get a big family. You're going to have brothers and sisters galore. And children and mothers and fathers and Places and fields, hundredfold. Oh, and persecutions, hundredfold. Now, how many people think that that's an encouragement verse? Anybody? like take that little verse and say I'm going to get a hundredfold persecutions by following Jesus and put that on your mirror as a reminder every day no we don't why because that's really uncomfortable in fact this is our tendency our tendency is to say wait 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 that's not why I'm following Jesus, so I can be persecuted. And yet, that's what he's promising us. Yes, you're going to get a lot of people around you, but you're all going to be persecuted together. Woohoo! That makes it better, right? We'll all starve together. But you see, this is, this is what this kind of teaching has a tendency to make us do. And this is why this friend of mine, by the way, said he feels like a fan. Here's the core of it. We hear something like this, and what we think is, I'm not doing enough. Right? Isn't that kind of where your mind was going as we're talking about this? Your mind was saying, I'm not doing enough. I could be doing more. And this guy, friend of mine, who I love dearly, I mean, I really love this guy. He's amazing. Felt like he hadn't done enough. 
And I'll be honest with you. Unless you're a full-time missionary, I'm not sure how you could have done more. And even some full-time missionaries might not have been able to do more. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're not doing enough. It's not what I'm saying. And that's not what the guy who wrote the book, not a fan, is saying either. The, can you put the, the book cover back up there? That doesn't say at the bottom, learning how to do more for Jesus. That doesn't say, you're not doing enough for Jesus, you need to do more. What does that say? Completely committed follower. Here's what I'm actually talking about. Why do you follow Jesus? Why? What is your reason? If your reason is because he's going to bless me, you're a fan. If your reason is because he will make my life better, you're a fan. If your reason is so he will heal my relationships with others, you're a fan. And when it gets too uncomfortable, you're going to be gone. When Renata and I were first married, 37 years ago, holy smokes, um, when we were first married, we moved down to Ohio. She had just graduated, been married about a year, a year, and we moved to Ohio to be part of this Christian community. It was not communal. They were just using the literal translation of the word ecclesia. It actually means community, not church. And there was a woman there who, whose husband used to be a believer, and then he, he left her for another woman and walked away from the faith. Ironically, when he was a believer, she was not. And he was done with her. He walked away from the faith, left her for another woman. She became a believer because she believed that if she gave her life to the Lord and sold out all the way to Jesus, he would bring her husband back. He didn't. I actually walked up to her husband with a playing card, an ace of hearts, with it torn halfway through the heart. And I handed it to him, and I said, you're breaking Jesus' heart. And he took the card from me, and he said, thank you. And he put it in his pocket, and nothing changed. After about three years, and he actually married someone else, so he was not coming back, she walked away from the faith. Do you know why? Because she was in, she was following Jesus for herself. That's the sign of a fan. When I say, why are you following Jesus? This is the key. Are you following Jesus for him or for you? Because if I'm following Jesus for what I can get, because he's going to make my life better, because he's going to bless me with health and wealth and good children and a happy marriage. 
All I've done is taken my former selfishness and dressed it up like it's holy because life is still all about me. And what God wants us to do, what Jesus wants us to do, is be selfless. Did you know the only way that I can make you more important than me is if I make him number one. If I'm serving him for him, and I'm, if I'm serving him for him, and I'm like the 12 disciples, and I'm willing to follow him wherever he goes, and I'm willing to go through whatever it is that he wants to go through. At one point, by the way, in that conversation, right after he's fed the 5,000, it might not be that conversation, but anyway, at one point in this conversation with the disciples, um, oh, I know what it is, it's not then, it's um, James and John come up to him and he says, hey, will you, will you grant us any wish? And he's like, what do you want? And they said, we want that me and my brother will be on your right and your left hand side when you, when you come into your kingdom. And this is what he asks them. Can you drink from my cup? Can you be baptized in my baptism? And they respond without a hesitation, yes! And this is what he says, you will. You are going to drink from my cup. And you are going to experience my baptism. And guess what? Those weren't good things. Baptism symbolizes death. And his cup, do you know what he was talking about when he said his cup? you know when he talks about his cup? When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Lord, I would that your cup would pass from me, but not my will, your will. And the other time he's sitting there and he goes, it is for this, it is for this cup, this reason, that I am here. And he says to his disciples, shall I not take my Father's cup? He's not talking about good things. If you're committed to him, you're committed to being uncomfortable. You're committed to saying, hundredfold persecution? Small price to pay for following Jesus. Small price to pay. He wants us, he wants our lives not to be based on I got to do more, but to be, be based on I got to be less about me and more about him. And if I'm more about him, I'm more about you. This is the message today. If you want to be a real follower of Jesus, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. The point is not whether or not you have wealth. The point is whether or not your wealth has you. Is it more important to you than Jesus? Is it more important to you than the people around you? Are you here for the wealth? Do you follow him for what you can get out of this relationship or what you can give 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that Christianity was afflicted with cheap grace. And he said, what Jesus asked for is costly grace. Costly grace. The grace that costs us our lives. There's a famous actor who I don't even have to mention because none of you people ever go to movies. <laughs> Seriously, every time I say, have you seen this movie? No hands ever go up. Anyway, he's, he's in this latest Jurassic Park fallen world. And he, do you know who I was talking about? Yes. <laughs> um, it's the big one. <laughs> um, he gave this, this talk. He was, getting a, he was getting a generation award. And he gives this talk, and he has the nine rule, his nine rules of life. And some of them are hilarious about like how to go to the bathroom at a party. But his last one was this. His last one was to seek God. And don't forget that God's grace is available for you, but it was paid for with blood. And I thought, that might be the hardest-hitting sermon that I've ever heard anyone give in public. You can get grace, but never forget that it was paid for with blood. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you take that gift that he gives us and you take it in and you, and you make it your own. And you say, I'm going to hug this with everything that I have within me. And that means if I have to pay my blood like you paid yours, it's, it's a small price. Americans, we don't like that part of this message. We are a portion of the body of Christ that has been blessed beyond reason, beyond imagination, beyond actually what any believers in history have ever experienced. The 200 years of being believers in this nation and not facing hardly any persecution is unprecedented in the history of Christianity. The real question is not, have you been blessed? It's not, do you have comfort? It's, is that what your faith is about? Are you here for the comfort, for the free buffet? Are you a fan or a follower? Let us recommit ourselves that I am not in this for me. I am not following Jesus for what I can get. I am following Jesus. I, Michael, am following Jesus for what I can give to you, my Lord, because you deserve it all. You paid it all. 
I owe it all to you. Lord, we don't want to be fans. It's just so easy for us to slip back into thinking only about me. Lord, we ask that you cleanse us of this self-focused heart. Replace it with one that is you-focused, that is others-focused, that follows you because you're beautiful, because you are worth following, and is willing to pay the price because we could never pay the price you paid. So no matter what price we pay, it's smaller than that. But we're willing because you are our Savior. You are our Lord. You are beautiful. Help us each day to renew this heart within us and to remind ourselves of who we serve and who we are in you and why we follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.